Well, this week I got a text message from a friend who's, who's not, not following Jesus, um, and it, it, read, it read something like this, that uh, they said, this, this coronavirus is, is scary. It, it feels like a scary movie. People are hiding. People are wearing masks. This is all very scary. Is this the end of the world? To which I replied, well, yes, and maybe. What I mean by that is, when you read through the scriptures, it is indeed clear that since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the end has begun. The, the end of all things has begun. History is moving to a moment, and we are in the final chapters of human history. So in that sense, yes, the end is drawing ever near. We are, near, we are now closer to the salvation than when we first believed, Romans chapter 13 tells us. The Lord Jesus is coming is close. But is it coming today? Will it interrupt our service? I hope. That would be better. <laughs> Will it come tomorrow or in a hundred years? We, we don't know when. So, so maybe Right? But Jesus told us very clearly, and as we've seen in the book of Revelations, there are birth pangs that began from the resurrection of Christ that, that will continue to intensify more and more as we get closer to the end. And this is one of the ways the book of Revelation serves us. It, it reminds us that all of this that we are seeing in everyday life is moving somewhere. It's moving to a moment, to a moment when the sky will roll back like a scroll and the Lord Jesus will return to take his people unto himself and to judge his enemies. And I think there is no more sobering news that I and our world needs right now than this sobering reminder. We are in the third cycle in the book of Revelation, a book that is telling us about Jesus and what he is doing and how he is bringing to pass all of the promises that God has, has made. We've seen the seals opened and we've seen trumpets blown and now in chapters 12 through 14 in the third cycle we see this, the focus is shifting to the, the evil enemies that are attacking the church in an unseen way. We saw in Revelation chapter 12 the dragon who is Satan and his attacking of Jesus and Jesus' people. And then last time we were in Revelation in chapter 13, we saw the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, the, the false prophet, right? And how they are working together through, through government and false religion and false ideas, working together uh, to influence the city of Babylon, the great harlot of the world, this world system that is like a, a current that is continually pulling people away from eternal mindedness and toward worldly mindedness and away from thinking about the Savior. How this unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts are laboring against the work of the holy trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is building his kingdom among his people who he has saved and sealed for that great day of redemption. And this third cycle here concludes in chapter 14 with giving us a clear picture of the destinies of those two uh, kingdoms, if you will. The kingdom of the world and those who have followed the beast and are marked with the allegiance to the beast and those who are of Christ and who have been marked by uh, the name of the Lord Jesus and his, his father. Their destinies are, couldn't be more different and we will see them both laid before us this morning. Now if you want to try and summarize what chapter 14 is all about, you might, you might do it like this. That Jesus is the Lamb who will save his people and the Lord who will slay his enemies. Jesus is the Lamb who will save his people and the Lord who will slay his enemies. Chapter 14 unfolds in, in three pretty distinct scenes. The first is in verses 1 through 5 where we see that the Lamb assures His sealed servants. The Lamb assures His sealed servants in verses 1 through 5. Then in verses 6 down through 13, we're going to see the angels announce an eternal gospel. The angels announce an eternal gospel. And then in chapter 14, we're going to see the Son swings 
the sickle of judgment. The sun swings the sickle of judgment. Verses 14 down through 20. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5 where we're going to see the lamb assures his sealed servants. Verse 1. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was no lie was found, for they are blameless. So, this is a, this is a jolting change in scene from chapter 13, where we go from this, this great beast to now, the scene shifts to to heaven, this, this place where John, John beholds this place that every believer longs to see, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a, is a word, that this, this, is a place, if you will, that shows up 155 times in the Old Testament, describing the eternal heavenly city where God dwells with his people. It's, it's in this place that Jesus here, we see, is, is central. Which shouldn't surprise us, because uh, whenever we see something like that, we should ask, well, where is that in the Old Testament? Now, I'm not going to read all 155 times that Mount Zion shows up in the Old Testament, but uh, Psalm 2 maybe came to mind for you here, where God the Father says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, you are my son, today I have begotten you, meaning I have uniquely established you to rule on my behalf. Here in this text, Revelation chapter 14, Jesus is described as the Lamb. He is the one who is on Mount Zion. He is the Son. He is the Lamb. And you'll notice, what is the Lamb's posture here? What's He doing? He's standing, right? This is the second time we've seen the lamb standing. We saw it back in chapter 5, verse 6. He was a lamb as though slain, yet standing, right? This once slain lamb is standing because he's alive. He is, he's alive. He has, he has been raised from the dead. He has ascended on high. He is enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is true now and it will be true forevermore including this scene where the sealed saints are all gathered together. Jesus stands, but he does not stand alone. With him, we find, again, the 144,000, which if you've been studying with us through this book, you'll remember that we've, we've seen this group before. They are back in, in chapter 7. We saw the, the 144,000, which if you want to learn more about them, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. But you'll remember that we've come to the conclusion that this is a symbolic number representing all believers from all ages. You have the 12 apostles and you have the 12 tribes multiplied by each other time, times a thousand, which is a number of completeness. It's the full number of the people of God from all history. It's the ones that he has known and the ones that he has saved and those, the ones that he has kept because he loves them. This is who these 144,000 are. It is indeed the people of, of God. Now there's some things we need to notice about uh, Jesus' people here. The first thing we need to notice is that Jesus' people are sealed. Did you catch that in verse 1? Uh, they had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This tells us what that seal is back from Revelation chapter, chapter 7. These, are, these who are beloved by God, they stand in, in, in stark contrast with those who followed the beast and were marked by him. 
You remember last, last time in chapter 13, the mark of the beast, the 666, again, those symbolic figures of, of allegiance to the unholy trinity? Well, these believers, they have associated themselves with Jesus and with the Father during their lives. And that is because, as we saw in chapter 7, the Son sought them and bought them and sealed them until the day of redemption with the Spirit of God. And that seal marks them saying, these belong to the Father. These belong to the Father because they were purchased by the Son and now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are God's people. That is what has marked them from the moment of conversion through their lives. And their union with the Lord Jesus is what makes them overcomers, which that brings them to Mount Zion, to this place where sin is no more and Satan does not tread and death has no more bite. This is where they are. They are in Mount Zion, their heavenly home. They are his forever because they're sealed. Mine, says the Lord. But John doesn't just see them. He also hears them. So Jesus' people are sealed, but Jesus' people here are also singing. Jesus' people are, they're singing. Did you catch it there, verse 2? I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Back in chapters 4 and 5, you may remember that we, we talked about uh, that, that I take the creatures and the elders here as not being uh, people, but as being angelic creatures. I think we see that even more clearly here, where they're distinguished from the 144,000 who are the redeemed. They're a, it's a different group. And the reason I think that's important to point out here is because we know from the Gospels, the angels are eating this up. They, they love this. They long to look into the way that God has saved people in time and history. We know that when one sinner repents, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice. So while the 144,000 are singing, you can bet the angels are in awe. Look at these people whom the Lord has saved and showed them such mercy. And these angels would have known that none of us deserved it. I mean, when I get to heaven... My poor angel, I wore, that, I wore that thing out. I mean, you know, it has been, he's, he's had a run with me. Um, but you know what? Praise God that God saves us and seals us and keeps us. And on that day, we will be with him singing the praises of, of the Lamb. Which the content of, of their song is certainly about the salvation that God has accomplished for them through Jesus. They're singing a new song. When you study the scriptures, you see this phrase, new song, shows up uh, most often associated with some sort of fresh deliverance that God has given. God has in some way freshly shown up and saved his people from something. Like right after the, you'll, you'll think again of the, the Red Sea, which that picture of the Exodus that has been all the way through the book of Revelation, where as soon as they come through the Red Sea, what do they do? They're like, pipe up the band, let's go, because we got to sing the song of, of Moses, well, here there's a, a new song that only the redeemed can sing because they alone know it. They alone know him, the one to whom they are singing to and, and singing about. They have known this greater exodus, the greater deliverance. These believers weren't always spared from, from suffering and certainly not from death, but they are spared from the judgment of Christ that is to come. And because of that, they sing. They sing, they sing to the Father who has kept them through cancer and coronavirus and bankruptcies and broken families and broken hearts and disappointments and dreams that were dashed and everything else that tempted to pull them away. He kept them. And they sing. They sing to him and they sing about him. And it's almost like words can't capture just as all the way through this book so there's symbols and you catch there's three metaphors used here to describe the singing there's the roaring of many waters there's loud thunder and it's like the sound of harpists playing on their harps 
This music is powerful. In some sense, it's like standing next to Niagara Falls with a thundering, or, or, or like being in the midst of a, 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 a thunderstorm where the thunder rolls and you feel it in your bones. And yet at the same time, it's tender and soothing and inviting like a harp. What will that be like? And just as, I'm not sure if you've ever stood next to a waterfall before, like a big waterfall, and tried to talk to somebody next to you, and they're just like, I can't hear you, <laughs> right? I imagine on that day, the praises of the saints in glorified bodies will be so thunderous that it will, in that eternal day, drown out every sorrow that could cloud their mind. Every grief that they endured in this life. The, ce the, the celebrating saints, their songs will make all that is trivial and petty and painful in this life fade from our mind. Because we will be with him. We will see the Lord Jesus and we will sing to him. And as our songs fill that heavenly Mount Zion, all of our remembrances of, of cancer and coronavirus and Alzheimer's and ISIS and slander and betrayal and bankruptcy and persecution and broken hearts, all of it will be drowned out, forgotten forevermore. And if not forgotten, remembered in such a way that makes the singing all the sweeter. These are a, a singing people. They're sealed, they're singing, they're also sanctified. Jesus' people are also sanctified here. Verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. First notice here that they are redeemed from mankind as firstfruits. The first fruit is the, the first part of the, the harvest that was, was taken out early and then dedicated to God, recognizing, God, this is from you and it is for you. Well, here, this harvest of souls, these sealed saints, these redeemed from all time, they are those who are taken out of humanity first to be with the Lord, with him forever. They are gods and they worship him. Now, what about this interesting passage about they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins? I've had a few people say, what are you going to do with that one, preacher? <laughs> well, the first question is, uh, where is that in the Old Testament? Remember, this is the question we've been asking all the way through our study of the book of Revelation, is when we see some sort of symbol like this, we want to say, okay, where is that in in the Old Testament. And as we study the, the Old Testament passages, we see that Israel is described as the bride of Yahweh. We see this, this imagery show up in Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23 and, of course, the book of, of Hosea. And when she is faithful, she is described as a virgin who is devoted only to Him, giving herself only to Him. Yet when she is idolatrous and runs after other lovers, she is described as, as a whore, as a harlot, as the unfaithful bride. Paul picks up on that same imagery in the book of, of 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to this from verse 2. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church who he, he watched them being tempted by all of the ideas of the day that would lure them away from devotion to Jesus. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul here shares the heart of God, a divine jealousy for them. He wants them to remain faithful to Jesus, to not give their hearts to other lovers, to chase after the idols and the offerings of the harlot of Babylon. This same picture is what we have here, and we also have it in Revelation 21. Listen to this from verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels saying, Come, 
I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The people of God are the bride. And this is the picture that's being used right here in Revelation 14. These 144,000 are pictured as the promised bride who have with expectancy waited faithfully for their marriage day and they have kept themselves pure from idols. That they've not given themselves to the offerings of the world. They have not defiled themselves with women, it says here, but symbolically with the unfaithful whore of Babylon which we are going to see later on and is going to show up in Revelation chapter 17. They have resisted her seduction is the picture here. I just want to make a comment about that. That does not mean that Christians are sinless. That when you become a Christian that you never give in to sin. That's, 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 not, what, uh, that's not the expectation of, of the believer. The expectation expectation of the believer is, is that our, our faith is not perfect, but it is persevering, that, that we confess and we repent when we do sin and when we do give in to the temptations that abound all around us. And the good news is the, of the gospel is, is not just that Jesus saved us, got us out of hell and into the heavenly Mount Zion, but that even now, the good news for us is that he helps us in the midst of our struggle to remain faithful. And his blood has been shed to wash away all of our unfaithfulness. This is the picture that is here. These are the people who have have persevered in faith, receiving Christ. And we know that Jesus did not receive us because we are sinless, but rather because we have trusted him who is sinless in our place. And then finally, the last thing you need to notice about these people here is Jesus' people are are shepherded. They're shepherded. Verse 4, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Interesting picture here. The lamb is the shepherd. He's both, right? Their lives, these 144,000, have been marked by trusting Jesus and being led by Jesus as the good shepherd, following him who is the lamb, who laid down his life and shed his blood for us. They followed him in life and through death and now into eternal life. And again, we see these 144,000 representing the full number This picture, brothers and sisters, assures us that all who are in Christ, everybody makes it home. Everybody makes it home because he has sealed us, for which we have great reason to sing of the great sanctification that he worked in this life and it will be complete on that last day because our shepherd was faithful all the way home. Verses one through five, the lamb assures his sealed servants that they're gonna make it home. And again, you got to remember that as the church is reading this letter, it's intended to warm their hearts. These seven churches that are first hearing this, and this for us now, it's intended to lift our eyes off of everything that's going on right now around us, whether it be temptation or whether it be this pandemic, and to lift our eyes for a moment to the eternal hope of Mount Zion. And it warms our heart to trust him in the midst of whatever we face. That is our hope. And no matter how bad it gets here, It will pass because Christ will return. Now this brings us to the second section, verses 6 down through 13, where we see the angels announce an eternal gospel. The angels announce an eternal gospel. We're going to see three angels show up announcing various things, including this eternal gospel, beginning in verse verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Verse eight, another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now John sees these three angels fly over him and his fellow saints on the heavenly Mount Zion here. And they proclaim three messages of utmost importance. The first, in verses 6 and 7, we see this angel announces an eternal gospel. There is good news that this angel is announcing. And it's a message given to all who dwell on the earth. And what is this eternal gospel? Well, verse 7, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, when you think of the good news of the gospel, this may not be the way that you, you would normally think of, of, of describing it. The good news here is fear and honor God because judgment is coming. That's the good news that is announced here. Now, you might ask, how is that good news? The reason it's good news is because a warning has been given. Not sure if you remember 2004 when an earthquake that registered 9.2 on the Richter scale struck the floor of the Indian Ocean and triggered a massive tsunami that without warning hit coastlines killing some 230,000 people in 14 countries. No warning. Brothers and sisters, there is something greater coming than even a tsunami like that. The Lord Jesus is returning soon. And when he comes, he will come to judge the earth, not with a flood of water, but with a flood of fire. And the reason that this is good news, that this angel announces it as a gospel, is because you have been warned. There's good news that you have been warned, judgment is coming, and this entire book is telling you how to escape it. You don't have to be swept away in the judgment that is to come. This is why it's good news. Judgment is coming which is good because there is a good God who will deal with all evil in the world, but it's also good news because he has told us how to escape it, that we would flee unto Jesus by faith, that we would turn from our sin and all of our love of the world that is passing away and will be swept away in the flood that is to come, and to flee unto Christ who delivers us just as he did Israel through the Red Sea toward the promised land. This is why it is is good news. And we're told how to escape it to fear, to glorify, and to worship the Creator, which only happens through, through Jesus. So if you happen to be listening to this right now, and, and as you're hearing this, you, you realize that if, if God's judgment were to come right now at this moment, that you would be left standing on your own before a holy God. And if you know in, in God's mercy, if you realize that that would lead you to be judged for all of eternity, Because none of your good deeds, they are all as filthy rags, says the Lord, before him, before a holy God. Because you're not compared to me or compared to anybody else, but we're compared to him. And all have sinned and fall short of his glory. If you realize that, by his mercy, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But cry out and say, Lord Jesus, save me from my sin. Call out to him. 
and ask him to forgive you, and he will. He is a wonderful, merciful Savior. This angel announces good news, that though judgment is coming, there is a way of escape, and his name is Jesus. The second angel announces a fallen city. So the first announces an eternal gospel. This one announces a fallen city. Verse 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is described as this ancient city. This is actually a quote from, almost a near quote from Isaiah 21.9. This, this ancient city of Babylon known for its luxury and its immorality and being an enemy of, of God's people. Spoken of by the prophets Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. It shows up six times, this Babylon does, in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, and chapter 16, and chapter 17, and chapter 18. And again, it's a, it's a metaphor for the worldly system of godless rebellion that dominates every age of human history. That seduces people away from devotion to God with promises of pleasure. And promises of prosperity. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This one who lures away from faithfulness to the one who deserves our devotion. Well here this angel cries out, there's more good news. (laughs) Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has been defeated. She will parade her perversion no longer. She will strut before the eyes of the saints no more. Her her sleepless seduction has been shut down. And you notice here, it's so certain that it is spoken of as having happened. It's fallen. So even though right now, experientially, Babylon is alive and well, this angel announces for all to hear, she is fallen. Because she has been defeated through the resurrection and ascension of Christ and will be fully and finally put down when he returns, which we'll see in future chapters in the book of Revelation. This city has fallen, this enemy of God. Then in verses 9 through 11, the third angel announces an eternal fire. In verses In chapter 13, verses 15 and 17, the the beast promised that if you give your allegiance, the mark, if you give your allegiance to him, that you will be spared and you will be invited to enjoy the offerings of, of the world. But sin always hides its price tag. And this text, in God's mercy, shows us the wages of sin, that it is a death that just as God promised Adam and Eve that in the day they eat of it they shall surely die, this is a picture of the death that is to come for all those who die in their sin. This is one of the most sobering sections of Scripture that God has given to us. It is not one that should be taken lightly. It is never something that should be joked of. It is real. It is true. And it is the destiny of many, all who are apart from Christ. If you worship the beast, verse 10, you will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever. And ever. And they have no rest. Day or night. These worshipers of the beast. And its image. And whoever receives the mark. Of its name. The consequence of sin. And devoting yourself. Your life. To worshiping. The world system. And all that it offers. Is seen here with most horrific clarity. There is a cup of divine anger that is filled with the wine of God's righteous wrath. This imagery is found throughout the Old Testament. 
This, this cup and this wine of wrath is described in Job 21, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 51, Psalms 75, 8. I'll just read this one for us. In the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The rebels of the world will drink down the undiluted full cup of the wrath of God. Some ask here, is this symbolic? And the answer is certainly. Yes, this is symbolic. But not in a way that lessens the weight of what it refers to. You see, because human language can't capture the scale of God's wrath. Hell is more horrific than we can imagine. It's a place of, of no rest and no peace and no relief. And as much as I disagree with things in Dante's Inferno, the opening opening scene that he paints of a sign hanging over the gates of hell that says, Abandon all hope, ye who enter this place. I think is an understatement. Hell here is described as a literal place of eternal conscious torment, which is nearly incomprehensible to us. I think part of the reason that that's incomprehensible for us is because we've never seen God. I, just as about anybody else who I suspect who's read this, has wrestled with how weighty and hard this is. If you, if you haven't, I encourage you to ask God to help you to see this with the sobriety that a text like this requires. But I think that the idea of this consequence being too severe, and I don't mean this in a flippant way, I think it highlights the fact that we have too low a view of God in a way that I trust that when we see Him face to face, we will understand that He is indeed the just judge of all the world and that sinning against an eternal righteous God deserves eternal righteous wrath. I want to say that just as heaven is forever, so hell is forever. This is something that you can't get away from if you take the scriptures as being God's word. In Matthew chapter 25, you have the separating of the sheep and the goats, and the destinies of both are eternal, one to life and one to death. It's the same word in the original language. We see the same picture later in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. The devil who had deceived them, this is verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That same description is later used in Revelation 22.5 with the destiny of the redeemed. That they will need no light or lamp or sun in that place, the new heaven and the new earth. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. It's the same language in both places. As a friend of mine recently put it, the life that the righteous enjoy is parallel to the punishment the wicked suffer. Hell lasts as long as heaven. Now the reason I... I pause to take a little extra time here is because in our day, this is not something that is, that is taken uh, well. This is scoffed at and this makes people angry. And I understand. I, I get it because I too once was not a believer in Christ and 
this was something that was very difficult for me to comprehend. But friends, God lays this before us to keep us sober, to remind us of the great glory and joy that await those who trust in Christ. And the great severity who, of the judgment for those who will rebel against their maker, who has sustained their heartbeat every day, who has given them mercy to breathe in every moment, and that they have used all of their energy and effort to rebel against him. This is the destiny of those outside of Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, hearing these words is intended to move you to respond, to hear and respond by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ and knowing that Jesus died that you might live. He rose that you might be raised, not to judgment, but to eternal life. But it's interesting here in verses 12 and 13 to see that this, this warning is not given primarily for unbelievers. It's intended to instruct the people of God. You remember, revelation is not just meant to be heard, but to be obeyed. Here's the exhortation, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This warning is intended to fuel our faith to keep on trusting to keep resisting the sinful seduction of the world, to keep obeying and following Jesus, to look to him who drank down the cup of God's wrath on the cross so that you would not have to drink it down one day, but rather so that you could joyfully persevere knowing that before you there is a banquet laid up where we will drink and celebrate with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, a cup of celebration rather than a cup of suffering. It's the hope of the believer. And this is how warnings work. Warnings like this and the book of Hebrews and throughout the, the Bible, God uses them to alert and, and, and sober believers to where we hear something like this and makes us say, I need Jesus all the more. And we reach out in faith and cling to him. It helps us to not take sin lightly, but to take our Savior as seriously as he deserves to be. And their faith, those who have followed Jesus, is seen and known and, and, and evidenced in real, observable, measurable ways. And God does not look, overlook any of the deeds that have been done, but rather, we'll actually see them again. Look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The word blessed here means divine favor for those who die having trusted in Jesus. Why? Because, well, first we see here, they rest from their labors, that we will not strive by faith forever, but that there is a day coming when we will no longer have to battle temptation and sin, where we will no longer struggle to obey and enjoy the Lord Jesus, but rather we will be with him and we can rest. It's intended to show us we're almost home. Keep pressing on. Recently, my son and I have been, uh, the family actually has been doing a lot of running together, trying to get out of the house, so we're not, um, yeah, so we just get out of the house, and um, my, one of my sons has really taken to, to running, and he loves trying to catch me on a hill, so we'll run up the hill, and I just, I yelled, I'm like, you're almost there, you're almost there, don't quit, don't quit, and as I've been reading this text, I feel like this is what the text is doing for us, it's looking back saying, keep running, don't quit, you're almost home almost home almost home and it says here that the deeds will follow them notice they don't go before you as some sort of resume to show your credentials as to why you should be received rather you're received on the credentials of another rather this shows as the evidence that you did indeed follow him so you are presented and then all of the evidence is presented 
And again, this is the good reminder that on that last day, certainly we have sins as believers, but they will be washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And what remains are the acts of faith done by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God for His glory in our lives. May they be full of that, that our labors are not in vain. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is indeed our our hope that is laid up before us, that these angels who announce this eternal gospel is intended to warn the wicked, but also to warm the hearts of the faithful to keep on running. Which brings us to the third and final section, chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Here we're going to see that the sun swings the sickle of judgment. And there's going to be two judgments, and they are very different, though they look strikingly similar. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This scene shifts again, this time to a, a white cloud. Right? So we've, we've gone from the heavenly Mount Zion with the saints to these three angels who are flying over. And now John, John sees this white cloud and the one who is seated upon it, one like a son of man. He is crowned here not with, with thorns, but now this time with a, a glorious golden crown, displaying that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is also armed here with a sickle. This imagery is used in Joel 3 and Jeremiah 51 of him being the judge of all, the avenger of avengers, if you will, the harvester of souls. This son of man language, again, whenever we see something like this, we should ask, where is that in the Old Testament? And we find it in Daniel chapter 7, where there's the scene of the heavenly courtroom and it Daniel recounts, I saw with the clouds of heaven there one came like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus spoke of himself in the same way, Matthew 14, 62, where the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, the high priest didn't much like it. But we are intended to see this and to delight in it. These angels here, if you've noticed, uh, that are in the text, they're involved in the judgment as messengers of the Father under His authority. And what I want us to see here is there's two harvests in view. One of the righteous and one of the rebellious. Look first at the harvest of the righteous there in verses 14 through 16. Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. This first harvest is the harvest of believers. Now there's some discussion on this because these two harvests look so similar, but stay with me, I'll show you why I've come to this conclusion. The first is is there's a common language used here of harvesting that is used of the day of salvation that's used used in the New Testament. We, We read one earlier from Matthew 9, verse 37. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There is a harvest of souls that is coming that will need to be reaped. It's the harvest of believers. 
Matthew 13.30, similar speak, uh, similar speech, if you will. At, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the wheat into my barn. So we have this similar language here of harvesting the believers into God's presence. And then the other reason that I would take this as, as the believers is that the destiny of those in the second harvest is clearly eternal judgment. And it, it just seems very strange it would be presented kind of back to back. Some have said it's kind of building on itself, and that is a possibility. But again, I take this as, as believers. Now the question then is, so why, why are some taken in the harvest of salvation? Well, it's not because they have not sinned. Because again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet these harvested souls are the 144,000 sealed saints of the Lamb. And why do they escape judgment? Not because they are more righteous. No, they have wicked deeds just like, just like everybody else. Some of them have even more wicked deeds than those who are the rebels of the earth. But the reason is because the Son of Man is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who shed his blood to pay for their sins, to have all of their evil deeds covered by his blood and them to be now clothed in his righteousness, ready for the bridegroom to come. They're dressed ready as the parables have told us to be. So if, if you are in Christ, this first judgment scene that we see here, you do not need to fear the Savior's sickle. It comes not to destroy you in death, but to deliver you unto eternal life, which again, the picture uh, that we saw at the beginning of the chapter highlights. But the reason we think that, I think that this ends this way with such a kind of a, a weighty, heavy picture of the final judgment is because the emphasis of this cycle is those who align with the, the unholy trinity and what happens to them. This is the emphasis of, of this part of the story. He's highlighting here the destiny of the wicked, which is what we see in verses 17 through 20 once again with the harvest of the rebellious. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 Stadia. This cycle concludes with vivid and violent judgment, where we have an angel from the temple, God's presence, and another from the altar who is overseeing the fire. And it's it's likened here to a this this harvest of of sinners at the end who have not repented is, is likened to a grape harvest. Where during a grape harvest, what you would do is that the vintner would, would take grapes uh, to the wine press, which is a big basin, and usually there's a, uh, like a, a bar over top, and you would hold onto the bar or onto a rope, and you would stomp on the grapes, and it would squish out the juice, and it would flow into uh, these, yeah, these you know, buckets or whatever to, to catch it. We hear the trotting of, of grapes picks up a different image, one that is used in Isaiah 63 and Lamentations 1 and again Joel chapter 3 where God comes in judgment, treading upon them, all those who rebelled against him and would not repent of their sins. Listen to this from Isaiah 63 in the description. Why is your apparel red? This is speaking to the Lord. Why is your apparel red and your garment like his who treads in the winepress? The Lord says, I have trodden the winepress. I trod them in my anger and trampled upon them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. I'm not sure if you remember, but in the book of Revelation chapter 19, when the Lord Jesus returns, his robe is stained in blood. But it's not his own blood. 
It's a fulfillment of this picture in Isaiah 63 and this picture here of the end of the cycle, which is when the Lord Jesus returns. It's the same scene. Once again, the cyclical view of the book of Revelation. The blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, roughly 184 miles, which is roughly the, the area of Palestine from Tyre down to Egypt, giving a picture here of the full judgment of all of the, the region that they would have been, been thinking of here. Notice also it's located outside the city. The wine press was trodden outside the city. Something outside the city is where uh, the, the unclean and the rejected would go. More specifically in our context here, outside the city that is Mount Zion. They are away from Mount Zion, away from eternal life, away from eternal joy, away from eternal peace. This is confirmed in Revelation 22 verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city, Mount Zion, by the gates. Outside the city are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. All those who did not repent of their sins are outside the city. Well, this third cycle here in Revelation from chapter 12 through 14 ends with the two destinies of all people laid before us. Eternal life for those who are in Christ and eternal judgment for those who are apart from Christ. So in conclusion, what I'd like to do is to give us three reflections for you to discuss at home, on the way home, in light of the things we see in our text today. The first is this. Number one, nothing is more important than your faith in Jesus. Nothing is more important than your faith in Jesus. Verse 12 again here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. We live in a day right now where everything is tempting us to take our eyes off of Jesus. Before the pandemic came, it was the same thing, but now as this is here, it's all the more with news and fear and anxiety and threats abounding all around. Everything is attempting to pull our eyes away from this sort of sobering eternal reality of the destinies that await all people. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that there is absolutely nothing more precious than your faith in Jesus. So in these days, do all that you can to kindle the, the fire of your heart before him. I encourage you, before you turn on the news or social media in the morning, would you, would you put your knees on the floor and cry out to God? Would you open his word to hear from him? If you're able to do that, I encourage you, please, draw near to the Lord in this time. Guard yourselves from the many things that are going to be creeping in for your time, attention, and devotion because there is nothing more important than your faith in Jesus. Number two, nothing you do for the Lord will be forgotten. Nothing you do for the Lord will be forgotten. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds Follow them. Speaking of those, those who die in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It is easy in days like this and all days to feel like, does any of this even matter? So much of what we do for the Lord is, is not seen by many. Oftentimes it's done in, in private. But I want you to know that the Lord sees in private. He sees all things. He measures it all rightly. And there's nothing that you do for him, private or public, small or great, that will not be remembered on that last day. All that is done by his grace, by the Spirit, for his glory, will remain on that last day. And I want to encourage you that as you think about laboring for the Lord, following him in faith and obeying him in faith, do it with the imagery that he's presented here in the text of, of the bride and the bridegroom, that we do it from love, we want to aim to remain faithful to him. Personalize it. Remember, do not, for whatever reason, sometimes we want to not personalize our relationship with the Lord, but it is intended to be truly relational. That we know him and love him. 
Let your obedience be worship aimed to please him. Nothing you do for the Lord will be forgotten. And then thirdly and finally, nothing is more certain than Jesus' return. Nothing is more certain than Jesus' return. There are many hypotheses about what we should do in light of the, the current pandemic and there's tons of other things in regards to what we do about elections and what we do about the economy and what we do about education and what we do about everything else. There's so much uncertainty all the time swirling around. And one of the ways that this book serves our souls is to put forthright in our eyes and before our face that what is certain is that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And as my friend asked at the beginning, is this the end? I don't know if it'll be today. I don't know if it'll be a thousand years from now. But the Lord knows and soon and very soon, he will return. And we can bank it. You can put everything on that. And my prayer is that God will use this word in some way to help us to trust him and to keep on going and to keep on going because we're almost home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, a weighty and wonderful word. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have eternal eyes, to see as you see, to believe the things that you have laid before us, to trust in the Lord Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we confess that there are many things that pull on our time, attention, devotion, and affections, and we pray that you would, by your Spirit, use your word for your glory to lift our hearts to behold Jesus. And Father, we pray for any who don't know you who heard this word today. Oh God, would you haunt them with your mercy just as you did me in a way that would show them that they have no hope apart from Christ. And might you assure them that you are a wonderful, merciful Savior. And might they turn from their sins and believe upon him for salvation. In the name of Jesus, amen.